in Micah chapter 7. Our themed verse for this series of revival meetings has been verse 7. What are we willing to put in to revival? What are we willing to invest? What are we willing to do to prepare? I heard the story years ago of the, the preacher and his son. He was going to an old church to fill in and preach and he, as they did back then, we, you know, we think we've invented new stuff when we put offering boxes at the back, but some of the churches years ago, they had the offering box at the back, and after the service, whatever was put in the box for that service, the preacher would go, the pastor, the speaker would go and empty that box, and that's what he's got, and so this was probably 100, 150 years ago, and the man went with his son, they went to the service, and when they saw the box, the pastor said, well, you know, sometimes if there's something in the box, other people might be more inclined to put something in. And so he reached in his wallet and he put a $5 bill in the offering. He preached the service, gave the service, and he walked out on the way out and he opened the box and he looked in and the offering was $5. And the young boy looked at his dad and he said, Dad, if you'd have put more in, you'd have gotten more out. It's true. Let me just say that what we get out of revival may be directly connected with what we put into it. Micah chapter 7, let's look at verse 7. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah is at a place where he needs to hear from God. Would you agree that we are at a place as individuals, as a church, as families, as a nation, where we need God to do something? We need a work of God. What is the experience of this verse and what can be our experience? I want you to see, first of all, as Micah talks about, I'm going to come to God, I'm going to look to God. If we're going to experience what Micah needed to experience and what we need to experience, it begins, first of all, with a feeling, a deep feeling of frustration. Look at verse 1. I want you to follow through this text, and I want you to see where Micah is. Micah says, you see those first three words? Woe is me. How many of y'all have ever had a woe is me kind of morning? Any of y'all had a woe is me, maybe a woe is me moment? Hopefully it wasn't when you walked into church this morning and you saw, oh, woe is me. It's that moment when you just, oh, that's where Micah is. He's at that place where it's, it's woe and he, he is discouraged. He is, he is discouraged because of what he's about to describe. He says, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the grape gleanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. Micah's using an illustration here, he's using an image of walking into a vineyard or walking into an orchard and really desiring a, just a, a beautiful piece of fruit to eat, and he looks around and there's nothing there. It's all been harvested, it's empty. I think maybe, the, maybe one of the best descriptions, analogies we could use to that to modern times is, guys, when, when, you're, when you're really hungry for a snack and you go into the refrigerator and there's nothing there. Have any of y'all ever experienced that? If you've ever had teenagers in your house, you can say you've, I've come through about 18 years of having teenage boys in my home, and let me tell you, every time I would go, what happened to this? It's gone. The snacks are gone. Who on earth puts a bag of chips back in the cabinet with two chips 
left in the bottom of it. You can tell I'm a little bit, no pun intended. Amen. <laughs> we found out who it was. He must have been at my house too. No pun intended, but I'm still a little salty about that. Clearly, this analogy's hit this touched some hearts. You know what I'm talking about. You're, you're just ready for something, and you're so excited, and you go. I remember several years ago, I, there was a restaurant that I was so excited to take Lynn and the boys to. I had talked this restaurant up. I had told about how wonderful this crab soup that they had was, and man, it was the best thing you've ever put in your mouth, and so delicious, and we got there, and that was the worst experience. They still bring that back up to me. Because you had your mouth set for something amazing, something delicious, and you get there and there's nothing. And that's where Micah is. Micah says, I'm like the person that walks into the, the vineyard and I'm ready to taste one of those juicy, sweet grapes that are the first fruits. And it's like the end of harvest. There's nothing there to be found. What is he talking about? Is he talking about a drought, a famine? No, he's using a physical image to talk about a spiritual situation. What is he really hungry for? He's hungry for righteousness. He's hungry for godliness. Are we hungry? Do we have a deep, holy desire for godliness and righteousness in our lives? Are we really desirous to see godliness in our marriages? To see godliness in our families? To see righteousness in our nation? Not just to get us back to what we think it ought to be doing, but to true godliness. Notice what he says in verse 2. He looks around the nation and the good man is perished out of the earth. There's not a godly man to be found anywhere. There is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. He uses the illustration of everybody's out to get everybody. It's hunting. It's not necessarily that they were physically, they may have been physically hunting one another, but the idea is every person is out to get the other person. There's no godly people around. It's easy for us to feel the desperation of that moment. When we feel almost as Elijah did as he was laying up under that juniper tree and he says, God, I'm the only one you've got left. And sometimes we feel that way. We look around and Micah says there's no righteous people to be found. There's no godly people in the earth. Verse 3, they that may do evil, that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. They are, you've heard of people doing things with both hands. They are doing evil with both hands. They're doing as much evil as they are capable of doing, and they're doing it earnestly. They're not doing this accidentally. They are evil in their intent, and they are evil in their actions. No righteous people, and everybody is doing wrong. The prince asketh, and the judge asketh for a reward. They don't just take bribes, they ask for bribes. These are the people that are to be the leaders. The judge and the prince in Israel were not just civil positions. These were to be godly positions. These were people that God put in place. They had a spiritual responsibility. So this is not just their civil corruption. There is spiritual corruption. And they take bribes. They ask for bribes. The great man, he utters his mischievous desire. So they wrap it up. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. 
the day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh, now shall be their perplexity. There's natural boundaries that have been crossed. There's, there's natural bonds that have been broken. And Mike is feeling this desperation. I've spent some time praying and thinking over this concept of desperation. And as I preached to you this morning on a simple prayer, God, I need you. I believe that there are times when we pray that prayer, God, I need you. And we would be wise to acknowledge that on every moment and every time, we need God. But do we feel that desperately? Or are we sort of casual in our approach? God, I need you. Maybe you start your day off with that prayer, God, I need you. But there are times in our lives when situations get to such a place that it's only in our desperation that we pray to God and we say, God, I need you. We get that phone call from a child. We get that diagnosis from a doctor. We get that word from our spouse. We get that moment where we realize, God, I need you. Desperation is good for our soul to realize how desperately we need God. Jesus says in John chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Without me, you are at a serious disadvantage. No, that's not what it says. But that's how we often take it. Oh, I, I, I can sort of muddle along. I can sort of make it. I can sort of push through. Yeah, I need God, but uh, yeah, it would, things would be better if I had God, but no, we've got to reach that point of desperation where Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And to realize, God, I need you. That's the fervency of desperation, that feeling of desperation. And some of you may be in that place this morning where you've done everything you possibly can. Maybe it's a temptation to sin. Maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's fear, maybe it's the situations around you, maybe it's just life in general, and you are at that place where you begin to realize, woe is me, God, I need you. Look how bad it is for Micah. In verse 5, these natural bonds have been broken, people that you should be able to trust. Trust you not in a friend. Put you not confidence in a guide the people that we should be able to rely on. He says, you can't trust them. Don't trust the one who's supposed to guide you. Don't trust the friend. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. From your very... He said, don't even, try to, don't even trust your wife. He says, we're at the place you can't trust anybody. You can't trust your friends. You can't trust those who are supposed to guide you. You can't even trust your spouse or your family. Why? Because in verse 6, the son dishonors the father. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Is that a pretty desperate situation? Micah is saying, there is nowhere else to turn. There's no place else to look for help. You've tried everything else. You've tried every other option. You've looked to other sources and God is saying to us, I'm the one that you need. 
And Christians have done that. The church has looked and said, hey, if we can just turn around the education in our country, we'll get things back on track. If we can just, if we can just reclaim the entertainment industry in our country, we can get this country back on track. If we can just reclaim politics and get Washington back, we can turn this country around. And God is saying, don't trust in those things. Don't look to those things. Look to me. I'm the only one. I'm the one that's the answer. And the church has been crying out for all these other directions, and God is saying, I'm the one that you need to call on. We need to say, God, I need you. It's the name of Jesus that's the answer. He says in this verse, the family is in turmoil against one another. It's interesting that Jesus quotes this verse when he says, I have come to cause this. And why did Jesus say that this was going to be every man's enemies were going to be from his own household? Because they... Came to, they came to him. It was to point people to him. This is the point of this, because notice what Micah says in the next verse. And here's where we move from a, a feeling of frustration to a fervent preparation. Verse 7, therefore, because of this, I will look to the Lord. Let's quit looking at all the other things. They're not the answers. There are some good things in this world, but the problems that we face, we can find some good sources and some things to help us. We can look to friends, but there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. We have to say, God, I need you. He says, I will look to God. This is not a look that is a glance. If you look at something, you know, maybe you're riding down the road and somebody, you're riding with your husband, your wife says, hey, look at that. And you sort of glance, yeah, I saw that. Wow, that's amazing. This is a look that is a keeping a watch. It is looking fervently at and waiting to see what is going to be the response. I'm going to look to God because He's the one. And I'm looking, God, I need you. And I'm going to look to see what your response will be. I remember times when I was a child and I would go to my parents and I would ask them for something. I could always watch and I'd see what their facial response was going to be. Sometimes maybe they, their response, they were distracted. They were busy doing something else and I knew I didn't have their attention. Sometimes they were, maybe that look was disapproving. They didn't like what I was asking for. They didn't like how I was behaving before I came and asked for something and I should have known better. And sometimes I would see that response that they were going to, they were going to give what I needed. But I was going to watch to see what's that face, what's their response. That's the kind of watch he's saying. I will look to God. I'm going to look and I'm going to be fervent about this. I'm going to watch to see what is God going to do. But he says not just I'm going to watch. He says I'm going to wait. You see that in the next phrase. I will wait for the God of my salvation. This is the idea of waiting with hope and anticipation. Just waiting. It's the waiting room where the years ago the dads used to wait when a child was being born and the dads would pace up and down. And I know a lot of you haven't experienced that. And about the time my oldest was born was about the time that they started letting the dads go in. And I was a little bit apprehensive about that because I don't do real well with needles and blood and basically anything that might make me pass out. And I was so worried that that's what was going to take place. I had even practiced and rehearsed what I was going to say to the doctor. So just in case I was queasy, I could still get out. Thank you, doctor. 
but I made it, I survived. But the dads used to pace up and down. They were waiting with anticipation. They were expecting, what's it going to be? What's the child going to be? Or is the child here? Is the mother safe? They were watching and they were waiting. And that's the kind of waiting that Micah is doing. Micah is fervently preparing for what he needs God to do. God, I can't, there's no help around me. There's no other situation. There's no other source. There's no other solution to what I'm in. But God, you are what I need. God, I need you. And he watches and he waits. God, what are you going to do? I'm waiting. There's another thing that Micah includes. And I I find this very interesting that he does this down in verse Down in verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him. You see, when we're talking about revival, it's easy for us to talk about, wow, we live in wicked times. We are desperate for God to do something. But our desperation should not merely be caused by the sins of others. It should start with the sins of our own heart. Micah says, I've sinned against God too. There needs to be a repentance Many people want revival. Few people want to repent to get it. Many people want the wonders of what God does when he moves, but they don't want to watch and wait until he does. They don't want to be fervent in their preparation. As we're preparing and praying for God to work, God will begin. And do you know that the desire to prepare for God to work, and that desire to call out to God, is a part of his work in our heart to start with? As he begins to call us, Micah says, here's what I'm going to do. I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. We come and we look to God with a feeling of desperation. We look to God with a a fervent preparation. God, I'm seeking you and I'm going to watch and I'm going to wait until you act. Look, we've been praying for revival for years, haven't we? What was it, just two Two or three years ago when so many, over a million people signed up to pray with the pastor up in the mountains that was going to pray and we weren't able to all come together to the same place, but we committed on one day to pray. And what did we pray for? We prayed for revival. We prayed for God to move. Why? Because we understood. But even now we're we're even more desperate because we know that without Him we can do nothing. We know that it must be God that works and changes things. Every Sunday night as part of our prayer, sometimes that's our Prayer time is about revival, but every Sunday night, at least at some point, we're going to pray for a revival. Why? Because we know that a work of God, God, we need you. Not just I need you, but we need you. I need you in my life. My family needs you. My marriage needs you. My community needs you. My church needs you. Our country needs you. God, I need you. We look to God with a faith-filled anticipation. I love this last phrase. My God will hear me. My God will hear me. Do you see the faith in that statement? That faith that says, I'm calling. Sometimes when we're calling out to God, we're wondering maybe in the back of our minds, well, I, I, maybe God's not going to, or maybe... And we always find those qualifications. Yes, I know, God does not always answer the way I want Him to. And He doesn't always answer in the time I want Him. But that doesn't stop me from asking. That doesn't stop me from calling out and saying, God, this is what I desire. I want my desires to be Yours. But I'm praying, I need You, and I'm trusting that You will hear my prayer. 
He says, God will hear. In verse 8, he says, the Lord shall be a light unto me, even when I sit in darkness. Woe is me. I'm in darkness. There's no one to trust. I can't trust my spouse. I can't trust my friends. I can't trust the leaders. I can't trust anyone. There's not a righteous, godly person to be found. But I can trust God. I can believe God. God will be a light to me. And then he says down in verse 9, He will bring me forth to the light. This is what God is going to do. But notice why he brings me forth to the light. He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. What was Micah looking for to start with? Is there a righteous person in this whole place? Is there a godly man to be found? No, there's not a God, there's no righteousness to be found. God says, Let me show you who's righteous. Let me show you myself. See, often what we're praying for is for God to do something for us, and what we need is God himself. When we say, God, I need you, sometimes we mean, God, I need you to fix this, or God, I need you to change this, or God, I need you to do this. And what God is saying, what, when you say, God, I need you, your prayer is saying, God, I need you, not just what you can do. And he says, oh, God's going to bring me into the light. And he's going to show me his righteousness. Boy, our prayer today ought to be fervent and true with a sense of desperation that apart from him we can do nothing. God, I need you. What's the situation in your life right now? Maybe it needs to be reconciliation with a friend. Maybe it's related to your marriage. Maybe it's related to your family with your children or your grandchildren. Maybe it's just life in general. Your prayer this morning needs to be, God, not casually, I need you, God. God, I need you. And the Lord, and the Lord will hear. I stand this morning on the promise of James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and he will what? Draw near to you. Father, I pray this morning that the fervent prayer of our heart will be, God, we need you. Central Baptist Church needs you, God. We need the power of the name of Jesus. We need your spirit moving in our midst. Lord, we need it in our families. We need him in our, in our homes. We need him in our marriages. We need him in our lives, in our workplace, and all the challenges that we're facing, the physical needs, the, the financial needs, the Lord, every situation. Teach us to pray, Lord, God, I need you.